This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And Self Work is a podcast that I decided to do last year when I really wanted to extend the walls of my practice. I'd been in practice for 25 years now in 2018. And I wanted to try to reach people who might never darken the door of a therapist or might already have gotten some counseling or therapy and been interested in what another psychologist might have to say. So thanks for being here. Today, we're going to talk about how to stop beating yourself up or basically trying to increase your self-esteem. I did a Facebook Live video for a wonderful website, if you're not aware of it, called The Mighty. The Mighty focuses on both mental illness, but also physical illnesses and features the writing of the people who are experiencing those or suffering from those in a very, very unique and personal way. Part of the Mighty is called Mental Health on the Mighty. They've got their own Facebook page, for example. You might check that out. And they've asked me to do monthly Facebook Live videos for them, which I thoroughly enjoy because I get to have an actual conversation with people like I wish I could have with you. But last week, we talked about depression and how those symptoms were affecting their self-esteem. And then, of course, as many of you who may have listened before, I like to focus on what can you do about it. So I talked about three different former patients of mine who had been depressed. They didn't feel valuable, attractive, smart, funny, successful, or whatever. And they were beating themselves up constantly. And of course, this became part of their depression. Sort of a cycle. The less you feel good about yourself, the less valuable you think you are, the more depressed you come. Because of course, in depression, It is hard to engage with others or to care about what you used to care about. This, again, in classic depression, not perfectly hidden depression like we talked about last time. And we all know that social media doesn't help this because it's very easy to believe that everybody else's lives are really wonderful and perfect and pleasant, and you are struggling with depression. So there are three different exercises I'm going to suggest to you. There are things you can do to help you out of your own self-esteem funk and start to feel better. Again, on the Facebook Live video, I got feedback that this was very helpful, so I thought I'd share it with y'all as well. The email from a listener today is a question about whether or not she has borderline personality disorder, and she also was heavily influenced by my posts on Perfectly Hidden Depression, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Basically, if you search for self-esteem or ways to improve your self-esteem when you're depressed, you're going to find lots and lots of suggestions. And many of them are the same, really. They talk about journaling. They talk about reaching out to friends, support groups for depression, exercise, mindfulness. They talk about cluing in to your own critical inner voice and beginning to challenge that inner voice. So not only are you stopping thinking negative things about yourself, but you're replacing them with other thoughts about yourself, other ideas, much more positive ones. When you're depressed, you also can be thinking somewhat irrationally at times. 
You can have catastrophic thinking. You can have all kinds of errors in your thinking that help you stay feeling out of control and like you're not valuable, you're not important. I think my favorite book on that, of course, there's the classic The Feeling Good Handbook by David Burns, which was basically cognitive behavioral therapy focused on depression, which has been found to be very helpful, by the way. And then Michael Yapko has a more recent book called Breaking the Patterns of Depression, which I think is a very honest and forthright book about, again, these tendencies and errors in thinking that people with depression tend to have. So I would recommend either one of those books if you're really struggling to feel okay about yourself or to stop beating yourself up. But I came up with three different scenarios myself that I thought I'd share with you today. Let's first talk about Diane. Diane was a patient of mine and was a very successful person in the community. She had done all kinds of things where she was well-respected. She came in to me because her father was actually arrested for a crime and went to prison. And when that happened, that triggered an incredible response for her of remembering her own childhood trauma, seeing her father almost kill her mother over and over again. And so that was what the initial work was, was trying to work through the gates reopening with a fervor from these memories that she was having. And she did great work. But she still had this gnawing feeling that what people saw was that little girl who was scared and who was helpless. They didn't see her as someone who was competent. And so she struggled with her own sense of self-esteem. She began, actually, at my recommendation, telling trusted people about her father and her past, and that really did help. But she still would come in and anguish over not feeling attractive, especially, and almost still believing what her father used to yell at her about how she was no good. So what I asked her to do, she had a lot of friends, and I asked her to ask each friend via Facebook or whatever, to describe her in one word. Maybe two, but hopefully one. If this embarrassed her somehow, she could say that her therapist asked her to do it if she wanted to. But I will never forget the day that she came back in after having done this. And she looked at me and she said, I don't know what made you think about asking me to do this, but it's been life-altering. Because Basically, the word she got back, I'm not going to say the actual word because this is a small community and I'm not sure who she told, but let's say people said things like heroin, survivor, eagle. She was obviously projecting onto others these negative beliefs she had about herself. So the exercise basically asked her to challenge those projections, to challenge these things that she believed about herself but thought other people believed the same thing. Now, interestingly, you may be saying, well, she asked a bunch of friends, of course they're going to say positive things, but she, on her own, had reached out to people that she'd worked with but weren't really close to her. She wanted objective feedback, at least as much as possible. One of the interesting things that Michael Yapko does, the author that I mentioned before, is when people are trying to tell him things that they believe are absolutely true about themselves and they are negative things, certainly depressed things, he'll have them 
go out to the mall and let's say their belief about themselves is that they've gotten divorced twice and no one would have anything to do with them. And so that question or that belief is embedded in a questionnaire that they pass out to people in the mall and get them to take it. They give them a chocolate bar or something. And so what, of course, they find out is that that's not true. So it's this very choice to challenge the shameful things you may be dealing with in yourself, but other people don't see you that way and other people don't believe that way. So that's the first exercise. You might try it yourself. Then there was Liz. I actually saw Liz when I was still in graduate school, and then she followed me into private practice. So that was a long time ago. I hope I did Liz no harm. She was really inspiring. She had been the victim of domestic violence for years. And while she was in therapy with me, she left that relationship. I think she went back, actually, the first time. And then she left again, this time for the last time. She got a job, she got her own apartment, all these things that he'd screamed at her that she would never be able to do, she did. But I remember her saying, I just can't forget those things that he said, and as soon as I make a mistake or as soon as I'm disappointed about something in myself, then I hear his words, I hear his screams. Now, we'd done a lot of talking about working through that trauma, we'd already searched through her childhood. We'd already talked a fair amount, in fact, a great amount, about her marriage, why she had tried so hard, why she had stayed so long, what all of that was about. And she'd forgiven herself for so much. She'd really done wonderful work. But as soon as she was triggered by disappointment, by making a mistake, she fell into that abyss once again. So I decided that it would be time to try something practical. So I asked her, okay, when you walk into your apartment at night after you get out of work, what is the first thing that triggers you or that leads you to saying these horrible things about yourself? She started laughing. She said, oh, I know exactly what it is. I walk in and I flick the light on at the wall and the bulb is out in the ceiling. And I begin saying, I can't believe you haven't changed this light bulb. That's such an easy thing to do. You obviously are the idiot that your husband used to call you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So instead of another discussion of the ins and outs of that, I said, okay, do you have the light bulb? She said, no. I asked, do you have a ladder? She said, my neighbor has one. I said, okay. Tomorrow night after work, I want you to go buy the light bulb. That's it. The next night, I want you to ask your neighbor if you can borrow her ladder. She started smiling at this point. I said, then the next night, or the same night, if your neighbor wants her ladder back, at 7.37 p.m., I want you to crawl up the ladder and change the light bulb. She said, well, why do I have to wait? And I said, because we want to give you lots of time to think about this and realize what you've been doing to yourself about this very simple thing. So sure enough, it was way before texting, by the way, so she didn't text me, but somehow she let me know that she'd gotten the light bulb. And then when she came in for their next session, she was smiling. And she said, you know, there was something about setting a specific time, date, place, talking about the different steps 
that made me realize that I was using something like that to trigger these horrible negative self-evaluations. And I just wasn't breaking it down into the steps that needed to happen. I wasn't thinking about what I could do about it. I was thinking just about how bad I felt. So, I think the key here and what we can learn is that it's important to identify the triggers that can lead to these horrible feelings about yourself, literally beating yourself up. And if you can begin to identify the triggers, then you can break it down and say, wait a minute, what needs to happen for me to not feel that way anymore? So here's number three, and we'll call her Stephanie. Stephanie had gotten divorced And it had been her idea, and so she was happy that she had gotten out of the marriage that she was in, but she found herself bored. She found herself going over and over again in her mind whether she'd done the right thing, struggling to reach out to friends because she was sick of talking about the divorce. She was having a struggle getting on with her life, and what she was doing was blaming herself, saying, you know... I wasn't happy with him. I'm not happy without him. What's wrong with me? She was believing that she was stagnant, that her life was like a pond of water that's not even moving, and that she didn't know how to create waves, right? So, again, I go for the practical. I looked at her and said, so every day from now until the time I see you next, I want you to do one small thing that you've either always wanted to do and never have, or that your best friend would tell me that you wouldn't do. Now, these are not huge things. These are things like, oh, I've always wondered what a kumquat tastes like, or I've always wondered what was down that street and I've never been. Small things, things that are very, very doable. And as far as the thing that you'd never do, for example, I don't like my feet, so I always wear brown shoes. So I would borrow a pair of red sandals from someone and wear the red sandals. You get my drift? Something you'd never do, not because it's unethical or immoral or whatever, but something that is just difficult for you to do. Well, she came back in and she said, I did the things that you asked me to do. I thought it was stupid, but I did them anyway. And at first I was thinking there would be nothing to say to you except, well, I did the things you asked me to do. But then I went to lunch with someone and I realized that all I was talking about were the six or seven things that I'd done that I'd experienced. And I realized that I'd had blinders on, that I hadn't seen that if small change can take place, it can lead to a better sense of self because I'm going somewhere. I'm doing something with my life. I'm engaging with life. So you have to address the stagnation of depression. You can make that about you and your own value rather than seeing that all you have to do is begin very slowly and with very small steps to create fresh things in your life, things that you'll look forward to, things that when you tell a friend will make you and them smile. You'll get to tell them what a kumquat tastes like, for example. I have to tell you one funny thing that happened. I gave this exercise to someone one time, and so she said in the next session, well, I did what you told me to do, And the last part, the part about doing something you never do, I went home and I sat down to write my list of everything that I was going to do that week. And then I stopped myself because that's what I always do. I always write a list. So I decided I had to be spontaneous. And that would be the thing that I really don't like 
being spontaneous, but that would be the thing I was a little uncomfortable with. And she thought that was hilarious. I thought it was funny too. So sometimes these very practical exercises can be just as helpful as insight or understanding family connections. It's not that that's important. You've heard me talk about it here on self-work. But so are these very easy-to-do exercises that can lend itself to some kind of growth and increased sense of self and self-worth. Again, to remind you, the first is to challenge projections of your own negative self-evaluation. That was the adjective list of people you know. The second is to identify triggers that can cause shame or self-criticism. And then find out what you can do about the triggers. That was the light bulb story. And the third story was about addressing the stagnation of depression and keeping your life fresh so that you feel good about yourself. That was every day do one small thing you've never done but always wanted to do or that your best friend would say you'd never do. So however you're hammering yourself over the head with self-criticism or disregard for yourself, maybe these exercises will lead you to a better place. Here's today's email from a listener. She gives me her name. I'm a college student in the South. I'm not really sure how to begin this email, but I knew I had to send you something to let you know how much I appreciate your self-work podcast and your blogs. You see, it was just last week that I happened to scroll through my saved videos on Facebook, and I came across a Facebook Live video you did for Mental Health on the Mighty. That's what I was talking about a few minutes ago. It was on borderline personality disorder. And because of that video, I wanted to hear more from you. This is a little personal, but for months now, I've questioned whether or not I actually have borderline personality disorder. You gave me different information that I've never heard of or found while researching it, And I found myself relating to more things that I care to admit. She says, it's terrifying. Anyway, that Facebook Live video made me seek out your website and your podcast. And I'm honestly hooked, which of course is very pleasing to me. I haven't had the time yet to listen to all of your podcasts, but I've listened to the ones on Perfectly Hidden Depression. And I'm kind of shocked that I also find myself in some of those things as well. I'm not surprised that I have depression, but I am surprised by how relatable I found Robin's story. That was from The Real Voices of Perfectly Hidden Depression, which is episode 57, I think. 57 or 58. I'm still not sure if mine is Perfectly Hidden Depression because I have tried reaching out to people. I have a therapist and she knows my struggles with suicidal thoughts. I've also told my closest friends and even my grandmother. I've never attempted suicide, but I've come pretty close once. I had the bottle of sleeping pills in my hand, ready to swallow the entire bottle. That night, the only thing that stopped me from taking those pills was a perfectly timed text message from one of my best friends, asking me a question. Could I be there for her? That's all it said, but that simple question saved my life. Then she says, I'm sorry I wrote you a novel, which of course she didn't, and she thanked me some more. I thought her email was very moving. The symptoms of borderline personality disorder are complex and complicated. And I'm sure that many people with borderline do feel like they are putting on a persona. That the terrible emptiness they feel on the inside, they cannot show to other people. So they are often trying to hide who they really are. And of course, that is an aspect of perfectly hidden depression. But the two are different. So here's my actual response to her. 
I so appreciate you reaching out and letting me know. The reason for the questionnaire is to suggest that perfectly hidden depression is on a spectrum, like all other psychological dynamics. Hopefully, your therapist can help guide you through the diagnostic web to see if you actually fit the criteria for borderline personality disorder. You can also have traits and not experience classic borderline symptoms. Of course, if one text kept you from attempting suicide, that's way too close a call to not take very seriously. So I hope you are and that you're working closely with your therapist. I wanted to feature this email because... I want to stress to all of you that that, what I call a close call, is frightening. And if it doesn't frighten you, then there's something wrong. So going in to let a mental health professional try to help you through that is so important. This young woman told me what she's doing with her life now, and it's awesome. So she wouldn't have gotten to do that had that text not come through. It can seem in the moment that things are so despairing. And yet, there is a way out. Just to let you know, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. And I just learned a couple of weeks ago that there's a crisis text line in the United States. All you have to do is text CONNECT to 741-741 and someone will text you back. I'll have that information in the show notes as well. Thanks for joining me today. You can reach out to me in lots of different ways. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and I have a weekly newsletter there with a subscription where you get both my podcast and my weekly blog post. So I would love to have you subscribe there. Of course, you can subscribe wherever you listen. That is really fantastic. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com, and I do love to get emails from you. They are confidential No one sees them but me. I respond as quickly as I can. And I love getting your ideas, your comments, letting me know who you are. That's really great. I want to thank a few people who recently have left me ratings. That's fantastic. And thank you. They're good. (laughs) So that's even better. I'd love for some of you to also leave a fresh review. That always helps when other people are looking, saying, well, what do people actually like about this podcast? And you can do that anonymously as well. You just use a nickname or something. The show notes will have a link to how you can do that. But mostly, thank you for listening. The best thing you can do is tell a friend. I'd be so grateful for that. If some of you don't have a Valentine's present yet, or you may be listening to this after Valentine's, it may be somebody you love that you'd just love to have a little gift to give them. I do have a gift book called Marriage is Not for Chickens on sale at Amazon. I don't talk about it in every episode, but I thought I would tell you about it now. It's funny. It's poignant. It's based on both my own marriage and what I've seen in many others. So perhaps you can take a look at that. Again, thanks so much for being here. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.